From the A-level algorithm scandal, to parents taking on YouTube, to making Facebook and Google pay for news, people are fighting back against the way big tech companies and governments use our data. Curbing the power of big tech has become a hot topic in recent months, with the US and Europe scrambling to deal with antitrust issues, the spread of fake news and hate speech. We're putting our trust in teachers. Uh, That's where the trust is going. There's going to be no algorithms whatsoever. These companies are among the most powerful and valuable in the world. And they need to be held to account and their activities need to be more transparent. But what are companies like Google and Facebook actually doing with our personal data? Is the pandemic being used to surrender our data to private companies? And what role can big tech workers and users play in fighting back? We would know what kinds of messaging you would be susceptible to, including the framing of it, the topics, the content, the tone, and where you're going to consume that. And then how many times do we need to touch you with that in order to change how you think about something? Even after coronavirus, will governments keep this heightened level of surveillance? That really is the biggest concern among privacy advocates, that whether this is a pretext for heightened surveillance around the world, a trend that we have been seeing rise globally over the past few years anyway. We're watching shares of Google right now down about 1%. On reports, more than 200 employees are organizing to establish a new union. Leaders of the Alphabet Workers Union say membership includes everybody from bus drivers on the Google campus to programmers, and they are aiming for a workplace, in their words, that gives workers a meaningful say in decisions that affect the company and the society they live in. In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking, why should we care what big tech does with our data? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm very happy to be joined down the line by three fantastic guests. First of all, we have Duncan McCann, friend of the pod and senior researcher at the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Duncan. Hi, Isha. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for being with us. And I'm also overjoyed to be joined down the line by Carissa Felice, Associate Professor at the Faculty of Philosophy and the Institute for Ethics in AI at Oxford University. Hi, Carissa. Hi, Asia. And finally, um, we have the fantastic Corey Crider, lawyer, investigator and co-founder of Foxglove. Hi, Corey. Hey there. Thanks so much, all three of you, for being with me. So let's dive in and start with the big questions. So, Duncan, you've written that we are seeing the emergence of a new economy powered by a new kind of fuel, data. Can you explain what that means? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Aisha. So data's always been around and data's always been a really, really important element of how we have learned more about the world out there. But historically, data's been both quite expensive to generate, um, expensive to store and expensive to analyze. And what has changed in very recent time, you know, just over the last couple of decades, is that the cost of producing, storing and analyzing data has just gone through the floor. And so we've seen a a new emergence of companies, uh, indeed whole new industries like online search and things like that, which are wholly powered by the data and kind of feeding into this new data economy. And I like to think of the data economy at kind of three different levels to help to kind of unpick some of what's going on. You know, at the core, you've got a companies, you know, making the digital equipment that we use. And this could be anything from kind of the routers and stuff that move our data around to our phones, to our computers. So there's a whole kind of core making products for us. As a second layer, there's a kind of service layer on top of that. And that's where you can think of many of the things that we really typify as what we think of when we think about the digital economy. It's gig economy platforms like Uber or Deliveroo. It's the big digital service providers, the Googles, uh, people like that, but also the more positive aspects of it. They kind of the sharing economy, you know, platform co-ops, things like that. These are products and services which are really have digital and data as really their core. And there's a third layer, which is kind of the digitized economy. And that's really where the digital and the data is really spreading out into all of industry. So now making cars is a highly digitized very data-driven activity. Agriculture is turning into a highly digitized, 
data-driven activity. Now, we can argue about the pros and cons and whether that's desirable or not, but that's certainly the trend. And then just to give a figure about the size, and again, it varies kind of country to country, but if you just look at that narrow service layer, so really just the platforms, gig economy companies in the UK, the OECD estimates that that's about 7% of our GDP is happening through this kind of new digital economy. And and that's really only going to grow. Thanks, Duncan. That was a really great overview before we go a bit deeper. So to come to you, Carissa, you've said that big tech companies like Google and Facebook aren't really in the business of data at all. They're actually in the business of power. So what do you mean by that? Interestingly, both Google and Facebook don't technically sell our data. What they do is they sell access to us through our data. So what a company like Facebook does is that it allows other companies to know who you are, your purchasing power, your gender, where you live, all kinds of things so that they can show you ads that can influence you more than somebody else would be influenced. And that is a very particular kind of influence. It uses knowledge to affect our behavior. And in fact, we have known for a long, long time that knowledge is very related to power. The more you know about a person, the more you can influence their behavior, predict what they're going to do, and try to change the course of things. But there's also an inverse relationship between knowledge and power, and that is that the more power you have, the more you can decide what counts as knowledge. So for instance, Google can decide what counts as knowledge about us because they are so powerful and everybody wants the personal data that they have or or access to us. And in some cases, this data might be even inaccurate. So for instance, um, you might be somebody who has a PhD, but you might get branded as somebody who didn't even finish school or something by some fluke mistake. And in this data economy, it's so obscure and so opaque that there's no way to contest that data and to correct it and no way to know how that data is being used, for what purposes and how it's affecting your life, whether the reason why you got denied a loan or a job or even an apartment was because of some piece of data that shouldn't even be there. Mm, Okay, that makes sense. I was going to ask when you you were saying around the data being incorrect, like, well, why does it matter? How could that impact your life? But those material examples that you gave there are really great. And I want to go further on that. Corey, you've also said that you're not so much interested in technology as in, in power. What would you have to add to what's been said so far? As data has been collected about all of us in larger and larger kind of quantities and with more and more detail, it becomes a kind of irresistible honeypot for all kinds of things. I think everybody listening to this podcast, of course, knows about Google and Facebook. And in some ways, them or their subsidiary services are like an inescapable part of modern life. But I think what we don't always realize is that all of those kind of massive data cells that have been created about us are now used to grade us for one or another kind of risk to kind of put us into different kinds of pots, classify us, and make, as Carissa said, really pretty consequential decisions about us. So it determines not just whether that t-shirt ad follows you everywhere around the internet, but actually whether you get served an ad for a job, whether somebody can discriminate against you for a housing offer or housing advertisement, you know, whether you're considered to be appropriate for hiring, uh, what your insurance premium is. As she said, there are all kinds of I mean, the police is another one. The police are constantly asking for access to, for example, Google's location data vaults. There are all kinds of ways that having created these massive lakes of data about everybody, everybody and their dog really wants to get their hands on them. And that really is about power. It's about who can kind of decide what information is shared about us with whom. Oh my God, this is going to be a very interesting podcast because even in the first few minutes, I'm feeling very alarmed (laughs) and there's lots of stuff that I'm like, I did not know it was going to go in this direction, but let's keep going. This is fantastic. So Carissa, you've written about how privacy isn't just important for us as individuals. It's also about us as a society. So let's talk a bit more about that. What do you mean by that? One thing I mean by that is that privacy is really much more of a collective enterprise than it is an individual one. So imagine that you are a super conscientious individual and you really, really take care of your privacy, but you have friends and family who don't take care of their privacy. You're going to be in their pictures whenever they uh, share, say, their genetic data, (laughs) there goes data about you. Whenever they share location data, if you live close to them, there goes data about you. So really, when we talk about protecting our privacy, we need to think about it in collective terms. So that's one aspect of how privacy is collective. The other aspect is how losses of privacy have collective consequences, just like, for instance, the ecology. 
even if you recycle everything and your footprint is very small, if others don't do their job, you're going to suffer the effects of climate change just as badly. And in the same way, we can see, for instance, with Cambridge Analytica, only 270,000 people gave their data willingly to Cambridge Analytica. With that data, the firm got access to data of 87 million friends who never consented or even knew about that kind of survey. And with that data, the firm did a tool that was supposed to profile any voter in many countries, and with that, they tried to sway elections. So in a way, our democracies got compromised because 270,000 people decided to give up their privacy for about a dollar. And one of the implications is that in the digital age, really, data is power. And if we give too much of our personal data to companies, we shouldn't be surprised that they are making the rules of our society. If we give too much personal data to governments, we risk sliding into some form of authoritarianism. For democracy to be strong, the citizenry needs to have the bulk of the power. And in the digital age, the bulk of the power lies with data. So if we want democracies to be strong in the future, we have to be in control of personal data. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. But I know a lot of people maybe listening to this podcast might be thinking, if you feel like your life is quite ordinary and you've got nothing to hide, do you still need to be so worried? I mean, I know that there's a lot of kind of material implications that you've referenced, and especially the ones along the lines of kind of collective democracy. But there will be a lot of people kind of listening to this and just thinking, well, it's not really that big a deal to me. And also, isn't it a bit of a trade-off? Because I'm up for giving up actually some of my privacy if it means we get technological progress. So what would you say to that? The first thing I would say is that the trade-off is many times an illusion. So these kind of technological progresses haven't been developed through data many times, but rather have been funded through personal data. So Google and Facebook could be just as good if they didn't use our personal data for commercial purposes, if they just deleted that data when they don't need it anymore, and they could have other kind of business models. So whenever we give up something in return for something else, we have to make sure that what we're giving up is absolutely necessary. And if not, then we should ask ourselves, why are we giving it up? The second thing I would answer is that one of the dangerous things with privacy is that you don't realize how important it is until you've lost it. And when you've lost it, it's too late. You can't recall that data. So for instance, in a recent survey I did with a colleague called Sharon Brook, we surveyed people on the bad experiences they've had online. And it turned out that about 92% of people have had some kind of bad experience online related to privacy. In some cases, it's identity theft and losing money because of that. In other cases, it's being publicly humiliated. In other kind of more extreme cases, it's being the target of spyware by, for instance, an ex-partner. And... These people thought that they had nothing to hide, nothing to fear, until they lost something very precious for them, either it's money or your safety or your reputation. And once you lose it, there's no way to gain it back. So that's just thinking about your individual well-being. You might be discriminated in all kinds of situations that you don't even know about. So for instance, when you call customer service, you might wait a lot longer if your data says that you're not a VIP person. So there are all kinds of things that you have no idea are happening because of your data. And then, of course, there's the other collective concern that even if you don't care at all about yourself and say, like, you're somebody who's an exhibitionist and who doesn't care about their money and has no kind of self-concern, you still have reason to take care about your, of your data because of your citizens, because of people around you. The kind of data that you are losing can have very bad effects for your children, for your spouse, for your family, for your neighbors, for people who are like you and share the psychological traits that you have. So... If you don't care about data for yourself, then you should care for others. Mm, okay. Corey, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah. So when you talk to people about data, one of the kind of reflexive knee-jerk responses that people sometimes give is, oh, well, nobody cares about it anymore. Mark Zuckerberg was right. Privacy is dead, all that sort of thing. But the truth is, if you look at what happens when people are given options and actually what happens when they realize just how much data is being taken from them online, people often do try to exercise that choice. So one of the examples that came about really recently has to do with one of Facebook's many 
many subsidiaries, WhatsApp, the chat app. And when they pushed to all of their millions and millions of users a notification that said, actually, what this means from now on is that to use our app, to use the WhatsApp chat app, even though it's encrypted, we're going to give all of that data over to the other company, to Facebook. And so if you want to continue to use it, you've basically agreed that it's all going to go to Facebook and Facebook can then monetize your data. And what happened is not that people threw up their hands and said, oh, well, I don't have any choice and WhatsApp is great. People migrated en masse to a nonprofit chat alternative called Signal. It was for a while the kind of most downloaded app in massive markets like India. They were so crushed with demand, Signal, which, you know, for a very long time, years and years had been a kind of encrypted nonprofit chat app used by, you know, kind of human rights investigators like me, investigative journalists and data hipsters. But, you know, low numbers of users compared to what then happened, it just exploded. And I think that just goes to show you that when you say that people don't care about privacy. I actually think that that's a, is a bit of a company talking point there. I actually think that when you give people like A, a clear sense of what's really going on and B, somewhere to jump, people actually jump. The other thing on the kind of why should they care if they don't already care is the unregulated data ecosystem at the moment means that it really is the Wild West. And when you download an app that doesn't respect the laws that are supposed to protect you and me with our personal data, then it is really shocking what ultimately goes on. So there was a, an investigation recently in Vice and Motherboard, the kind of data part of Vice, that showed that uh, there was a, a Muslim prayer app that had nearly 100 million downloads. So millions and millions and millions and millions of Muslims in this country and around the world. And that app was basically feeding their location data into a kind of shady ecosystem of various intermediaries. It went through all kinds of people, but ultimately one of the customers who was buying their location data was who? The United States military and special forces. And I have to say, if you had asked those users of that app when they were downloading it, hi, do you mind <laughs> uh, if just every time you log in to check prayer times or which way Mecca is for your prayer, if the United States military is able to check on you, I guarantee you those people would have cared about it. So there are real concrete harms that come from not paying attention to these issues. And I have to say the under enforcement of the laws that protect all of us. And it's often people like that, those kind of marginalized communities who already have existed under suspicion for ages and ages, but not for any good reason, by the way, but just because of racism, uh, who really lose out from the system as it is. Wow, that is quite mind-blowing, that story. I mean, I'm sure there's a million others like it, but yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is a good response to that question of why should we care? Um, Duncan, on that same question, I guess, around the collective implications of this, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I've been recently thinking a lot about children's data and about parenting and how, you know, families operate kind of around data. And in that, there's been a really interesting kind of aspect to this that a journalist I was talking to kind of raised and has written a really, you know, really extensive article on, which is this idea of sharenting and the future. So I've got three kids and they have grown up kind of in the digital sphere. And as the oldest was being born, it was just as you know, some of these social media platforms were really becoming the big thing and sharing your life on them was really part of what you were expected to do. And I think it's really, really interesting that so many people ended up massively sharing their lives. But again, as Carissa and Corey have spoken, if you share a family photo, it's not just a picture of you individually, but it is a picture, obviously, of the whole family. And you are putting data out about young people and ultimately they're not able to consent to that and obviously as parents we have the consenting rights for children uh, at least until they reach 13 in this country amazingly when they reach 13 they can consent themselves to places like google and facebook taking their data when they can't really enter into many other contracts out there in the real world but you know what's really interesting here is whether this is going to lead to some kind of future claims whereby parents would have created such a large data trove of children. And obviously, some of it might be really, really harmless, but other things may forever be tagged against these children as they reach maturity and adolescence. It might be ways of saying, you know, well, you, maybe you come from a kind of quite destructive family, you know, maybe there's evidence of criminality in some of the photos that may, you know, not escape you ever and whether this will lead in the future to some kind of reckoning between parents and children where, in fact, children 
end up taking parents to court for basically ruining their lives before they even had a chance to start their life. So it's just another interesting way in which what was initially kind of a really innocent activity, which was just parents wanting to share how beautiful their children were, or how funny they were, or how silly they were with friends and family, which is what most people thought they were doing when they were on Facebook sharing a photo of their children. What they were in fact creating was an almost impossible to erase digital trail that starts from birth for these children, unlike us, where I was able to live until past my university life before the data economy was really doing anything, you know, material. And so all of that is kind of forgotten in a data economy kind of world, in a sense. But our children will never be able to escape that. And there's a really scary stat by a company called Super Awesome, which much as they're great that they sound, they're actually a child marketing company. And so what they estimate that by the time the average child reaches 13, the ad tech industry, so the data collection industry has collected 73 million data points about the average 13-year-old. So imagine extrapolate that to us as adults and our much greater use of kind of these digital platforms. Imagine the quantity and the, the amount of data I knew when you said super awesome, they weren't going to be super awesome. Nothing ever is as it sounds on the weekly economics podcast. I want to move on to talking about targeted ads in a minute, which you which you mentioned there briefly, Duncan. But before we do, Carissa, I just wanted to ask, you've said that we're using the population kind of in the way that Duncan was just talking about as guinea pigs for testing artificial intelligence without our consent. So I was hoping you could say a bit more specifically about that AI piece. Yes. So one of the interesting things that we can learn from medical ethics is how it influenced the practice of medicine in the 1960s. In the 1950s, when you went to the doctor, you might be enrolled in a study and never learned about it. And you might get a placebo and never learn about it. And there were all kinds of practices that were never thought to be problematic because nobody had stopped to think about it. And when bioethics came along, it changed all those practices. So now we think that it's not okay to enroll people in studies that can have harmful consequences. We need their consent. We give them some kind of compensation. And we don't just roll out a drug into the general population and see how it works. Even in very extreme circumstances like the coronavirus pandemic, we made sure that vaccines had a decent trial. And with respect to algorithms, we act as if the general population were guinea pigs. And some algorithms can have just as bad an effect as any bad drug you can possibly imagine. And some of them are, are even more powerful because they, they can reach millions and millions of people and can have really destructive effects. So, for instance, an algorithm for the Michigan Unemployment Agency got things wrong 93% of the time. And that meant that tens of thousands of people got accused, falsely accused of fraud. And these were people who didn't have jobs. So they lost their houses, they lost their families. And the Michigan Unemployment Agency learned about it two years later when lives had been broken. So it's incredible to me that we allow algorithms to be let loose into the world without any kind of regulation. And one of the things that I have argued is that they should, at least algorithms that make very important decisions about people's lives, should be trialed thoroughly before letting it loose. So just like we do randomized control trials for drugs, we should do randomized control trials for algorithms because that's the only way we can really know about their effects. Many times algorithms behave very differently in the lab with control situations and with a very limited amount of data than when they're in, out in the real world. Okay, great. So Corey, you've worked on cases against the use of algorithms by the Home Office and in the A-level scandal last year. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So the other thing to say about this, of course, is that the other great groups that are exercising power about us with data are our own governments, right? And there has been a bit of algorithm creep in all parts of the public sector, where in a time of austerity, government departments get told, listen, you can do more with less, and you can concentrate your enforcement resources on the risky people, the people who really need the enforcement resource. And actually, what we have seen is that that has had some pretty disastrous consequences. So a couple of algorithms, and again, just to pick up on Carissa's point, she's saying, look, we've got to test this stuff before we roll it out. Well, so far, the approach has been just the opposite. It's been to compete 
compute first and ask questions later. And what that has meant has been all kinds of problematic stuff. So the first case that Foxglove won involved an algorithm that had actually been used by the Home Office for years. It was used to risk score and grade and therefore partially determine every application for a visa to come to this country since 2015. Basically, there was a computer program that rated you, gave you a kind of traffic light risk score, red, amber, or green, partly depending on what nationality you were. And if you came from certain countries, and you know the Home Office never gave us the list, but there was an undisclosed list of undesirable nations, then you were statistically more likely to be rated red, and therefore more likely to be denied a visa. And then there was a doom loop, a kind of vicious feedback loop in which you're being denied a visa having been rated risky, was used as a data point to justify keeping that country on the list of undesirable nations. So anyway, we judicially reviewed it. That's to say we sued the Home Office, we took them to court. What's interesting about it is we won, but before the judge even had to say so. To go back to Carissa's point that this stuff is largely untested, these systems are so under-reflected upon at the moment, and there's so little kind of democratic scrutiny or control of them that the Home Office conceded the judicial review before we had even gotten to the first hurdle, which is called the permission stage. They just said, oh, yeah, no, you're kind of right. You know, never mind. We had this program for five years, but we're going to bin it and start over and maybe think again about discriminating against people. The other kind of classic example where, you know, mass data or data was used to kind of sift and determine really consequential issues about people in this country and the UK was, of course, the A-level algorithm from the summer, which is probably one of the few that most of your listeners will have heard of. Of where in the name of cutting down on what they were worried would be grade inflation because kids couldn't sit their exams during COVID, and in the name of just maintaining the historical grade curve, they developed and applied an algorithm that turned out systematically to underscore bright students in large subjects and underperforming schools and to privilege students in small subjects such as, say, classics in smaller and independent schools. And, you know, we all have seen the kind of fallout from that. But the basic point, I think, is there's been such a democratic deficit around these systems. And unless we can kind of remedy that, we're going to continue to see these errors coming up again and again and again. Um, And also for listeners who are interested, we did actually do uh, an episode in 2019 of the Weekly Economics podcast with Sophia Emoja-Noble on algorithms of oppression, her fantastic book. So I would recommend that for for some more info. So let's talk about ad tech. Duncan, we'll start with you. You've written about the problems with targeted ads. And I know this is one of the areas that I think a lot of people will have experience with or resonate with around, you know, I had a thought in my head and then I looked at my phone and I was getting an ad about it. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, on the face of it, it might seem like addressing ad tech, which is an area of real focus of my work, is in some ways less important than, you know, what Corey's been talking about, immigration status, A-level algorithms, or even the one that Carissa mentioned, again, around some of those public sectors that really impact people's lives. But actually, the way that advertising works on the internet is actually so crucial to the whole digital economy, which we were talking about at the beginning and so fundamental a driver of some of the worst practices around the data economy. You know, the first thing to is these digital economy superstars are basically powered by advertising. And again, that's really the key. I think Carissa talked about it at the beginning. You know, they're not really selling or trading our data, not the big players, because data is their kind of competitive advantage. They're selling our attention, And they're doing that by ads. So some of the listeners will be surprised to learn that when you click on a website, it doesn't actually come preloaded with the adverts that you see. So you may see a banner ad along the top. Uh, You may see a few side ads. You may see some pop-up ads come along. Most of those are not preloaded when you click on that site. What happens between you clicking on a link and the website appearing is that a profile of you is created, what's called a bid request and is sent out possibly through another ad tech company, through like a marketing company, which embellishes that profile with other things that it knows about you. That profile is then sent to an online auction system. And again, all happening in real time. And the winners of those auctions then get the right to place an ad to you based on the specific profile that was raised about you. So underline that process is a huge amount of data and a huge amount of computational power as well. Under the ad tech kind of system actually has a huge number of really fundamental problems with it. And they range from the social and environmental problems, 
but also like really big legal and technical problems with the way the whole thing works. So kind of on the social side, first of all, it's just another carbon emitter. As the system becomes more complex, uses more AI, the carbon emissions are just going to increase. The latest figures that I could find were from 2016. You know, the ad tech ecosystem is already consuming 20% of the UK's annual emissions just to fund the kind of advertising ecosystem. You know, as all advertising does, but as ad tech potentially does a little bit better, is it's really driving consumerism and this unhealthy aspect to possessions. But it's also doing things like enabling disinformation and clickbait. You know, there are huge numbers of stories now, especially as a lot of work being done around the storming of the capital in January and linking massive brands, advertising on disinformation sites, which basically fund these disinformation sites, thereby allowing them to get this information out wider. And so ad tech is actually enabling disinformation, which is actually having real world consequences. It's not just about a few people believing that the earth is flat or not. It's actually causing people to take real action. And then for me, the most challenging part of the ad tech world which is that there's a strong reason to believe that it's actually built on a huge amount of illegal activity. And that's illegal activity in three different areas, which are absolutely essential for ad tech systems to work. So the first one is around data collection. There's a huge amount of illegal data collection happening around the digital economy. And much of that data is being used in the process of delivering us adverts. The second part of the process is these profiles to be built and compiled of us. So There are thousands of digital profiles of Duncan McCann out there on the internet, some from companies that I've heard of, some where I've physically gone and requested the profile that they hold of me that they are now legally required to share with me. But there will also be thousands where I've just never heard of the company. And so I have no idea they even have a profile of me. And there is a definite strong argument to say that a lot of that profiling activity also happens in contravention of the Data Protection Act that we have here in the UK. And finally, and this is at least one area where the Information Commissioner's Office is actively reviewing it, these pockets of our personal data, which are broadcast over these auction networks so that advertisers can bid to show us an advert. The New Economics Foundation calculated that for UK citizens, that is happening about 10 billion times a day. So 10 billion profiles of UK citizens are being sent to these ad tech networks. And the people on the other side, the automated systems on the other side of the ad tech networks, there's nothing to prevent them kind of scraping and recording that data other than obviously it being not allowed by the contracts that they've engaged in. So yeah, so the ad tech app environment offers massive social problems, massive environmental problems, legal and technical. And yet it is also the thing that funds the internet. 98% of Facebook's revenue comes from ads. 90-odd percent of Google's revenue comes from ads. It's vitally important that we tackle this ad tech problem, but doing anything to it, you're basically meddling with the whole economics of the digital economy. Mm, It's kind of like a Jenga situation. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks, Duncan. I want to move us on, but just to, I'm sure that Corey and Carissa, you have things you want to add on ad tech before I sweep us on. Yeah, So Fox Club has been working and is delighted to be working with Duncan on a case about this whole viral economy and the surveillance of children, which is basically against YouTube for its collection of data of kids under 13. I won't get into the kind of long and the short of it, but basically it's illegal under the GDPR. And if you have a kid who has used YouTube since the GDPR came to into force and is under 13, then you and your family may well be eligible for compensation at the end of it. But actually the reason that Foxglove did it and is delighted to be working with Duncan about it is because of all of these ripple effects that come from what gets called the attention economy. And there are all kinds of ways that the viral imperative has poisoned the public square. But just to step back and think about it, the companies want you to stay on. They are in a war for your eyeballs and your attention, because the longer you're on, the likelier it is that you or one of millions and millions like you will click on an ad. And that means that they get money. That's the basic way that it works. But what that means is that they have designed all of the systems around one value and one value only. It's not art. 
It's not newsworthiness. And it certainly isn't what's good for your child. All they have designed it around is virality. Now, as adults who use the internet, we've seen what that has looked like in the context of Twitter and the news and the adult world, right? I mean, arguably, the United States just had its first viral president who basically was able to catapult himself to the presidency, not because he was an excellent or effective politician, but simply because Donald Trump has a real skill at going viral. But it looks even grimmer in the context of our kids. If you go on YouTube, I don't know if any of you have seen some various parts of the kind of demonic world that is children's YouTube. The artist James Bridle has a fantastic TED Talk video about this that I would recommend that you watch if you've got a spare 10 minutes at some point about children's YouTube. Just look it up on God Help Us Google. But basically, there are these things called surprise egg videos. I don't know if any of you have seen them, but basically it involves a couple of hands in front of a camera opening a Kinder Egg. And maybe there'll be some kind of kitty techno playing in the background or what have you. The hands open the Kinder Egg. They take out the toy. They show the camera the toy. They put the Kinder Egg down. And then they go and they pick up one of like a stack of 20 Kinder Eggs. And they just do that again for, let's say, seven, eight minutes. I mean, can you imagine a sane adult that would watch this? No. These videos have hundreds of millions of views on YouTube. Who watches that? Who would watch it? The answer is toddlers, right? I have a three-year-old myself. Toddlers are totally interested in that kind of thing. It's kind of attention crack for toddlers, basically. And it makes YouTube a huge amount of money. All while YouTube's formal position is that YouTube itself, quote, is not for children under 13. You find me someone over 13 who can sit through one of those videos for longer than about 10 seconds and get them analyzed. But anyway, so we've decided to help and we're very proud to be working with Duncan and Hausfeld on this on this case because we think it's a way to talk to a really large group of families basically about what is lost in the exchange when we go online and quite frankly the fact that the greatest lie of the contemporary economy is that these services are free they are not they are extracting something from you that it is such value to them that they have built the world's largest and richest corporations atop it Wow. So tell us more then about this case. I mean, Duncan, what is it exactly that you're trying to achieve? What would be the best outcome? So yeah, so the case specifically is against YouTube. And what the case is alleging is that, as Corey said, that since the implementation of GDPR here in the UK, they have been illegally collecting the data of under 13 year olds, which is how children are defined in the Data Protection Act. The legal case is about getting some kind of compensation for the damage that has been done. But I think it's no secret that, you know, the reason that I took on the case as well, and definitely something I share with Corey, is that what we want to see is this case to be a catalyst for real change in the way that the digital data economy works. We start to see enforcement happen around specific breaches, where errors or hacks or other things have led to like massive data breaches. What we've seen less of, and I think is the more interesting area is where illegal activity is happening by design, because that's the way the system is designed to work. And that's really what my case is about. It's about saying that the way that YouTube, and obviously YouTube is not the only company that is engaging in the illegal collection of the data of under 13 year olds. The reason that we decided to take on YouTube is because survey after survey shows that it is the most visited piece of online real estate by children. Uh, There's almost no child that hasn't been on YouTube. And indeed, you know, even with online schooling today, you know, my children's schools are pushing my kids to YouTube on a daily basis. So it has now become, I think, part of the daily lives of probably most children across the UK. And so what we really want to see is policy change. Hopefully, once my case is finished, if we are to be successful in the future, when a child goes to YouTube, their data will not be collected. That data will not be then therefore YouTube and their parent company, Google, to enrich a profile about that child. And then finally, that when they are on YouTube, that their personal characteristics, their profile is not used to then target them ads. And that's really what I want to see. And I want to see that not only across YouTube, which is obviously the target of the legal case, but across a much broader space so that children can, with confidence, go on the internet and know that they are not being tracked, profiled, and served ads. That's really the goal. 
Okay. Wow. I mean, it sounds like an incredible case. Best of luck with it. And hopefully you'll be back to talk to us about it too. I'm aware of time and I want to talk about changes and how we go forward from here. But before we do that, Carissa, I wanted to come to you because I know you've written that there were some moves to regulate online privacy in the US in the early noughties, but that it was abandoned after 9-11. So I was hoping that you could talk a bit more about that. And then off the back of that, I guess, if that didn't work, what are some of the structural changes that you think that we need in the data economy? And then we'll come to each of you in turn on that. So yeah, after 9-11, the US government realized that it could literally make a copy of all the data that was being collected and hopefully use it to prevent terrorism. Now, it just turns out that, one, big data is not the kind of method that is good for preventing terrorism. No matter how much data you can have on people, nobody would have been able to predict that two people were going to use a pot to create the Boston Marathon attacks. That's just not the kind of thing that you can prevent. And secondly, this collection of personal data is incredibly dangerous for national security. So here are two examples just to illustrate. The first one is that hackers only need to hack about 10% of electrical appliances in a country and turn them on at the same time to bring down the national grid. And there have already been very serious attacks to the national grid, for instance, in the UK during the pandemic. So just imagine being in lockdown and not having electricity. It would be seriously bad. Another example is Last year, the New York Times had a piece about two journalists who were not tech savvy at all. They just got access to location data from a data broker because this location data is sold to almost anyone and it's, and it's legal. And with that data, they figured out where the president of the United States was because they got access to the phone of a security agent. It was pretty easy to correlate the president's schedule with their location and with the phone. And if the president of the United States is not safe, then who is? So it's really, really serious. Now, going back to ads, I agree with Duncan that ads is how this surveillance economy started. And that's where we have to end it. And two things are really important. First is that ads are really problematic in all the ways that Duncan mentioned, like fraud and very illegal things. It funds and kind of incentivizes extremism, all those kind of things. And... It's totally unnecessary because people say like, well, I don't want ads that are irrelevant for me. And that's fine, but we can have relevant ads without having all this surveillance. So for instance, say you're looking for a bike and you search for a bike. That's all we need to know about you to show you ads of bikes. We don't need to know your sexual orientation, uh, your political tendencies, where you live, your gender, your age. We don't need to know any of it. And just to make it very kind of tangible for people, what kind of data they're losing in this kind of bids. It's data that includes, for instance, whether you have been the victim of a rape or whether you suffer from premature ejaculation or impotence. Or like It's seriously sensitive data that ends up in hands that shouldn't have it. And the very fact that we allow people to profit from these incredibly intimate details of our lives is just morally repugnant in a kind of very tangible way. So in my book, Privacy is Power, I argue that we should end the data economy. Basically, personal data is not the kind of thing that should be bought or sold. Even in the most capitalist of societies, we agree that there are certain things that are outside of the market. We don't buy votes. We don't buy children. We don't buy the results of sports matches. And personal data should be on that list because it's just too dangerous and it creates too many risks for society. Along with that, we need to end personalized ads because the disadvantages that they create are huge. And in fact, we are risking a financial crisis like the one we had in 2008, because it turns out that this system of bids and market of ads were created by the same people who created the subprime mortgage market. And the two markets share many of the same problems. And in fact, there are people who are now arguing that we are living through a bubble and that when it breaks, it's going to be very, very destructive for society. So we should ban personalized ads. We have to have better cybersecurity. And we should force any kind of company or institution who wants to collect or manage personal data to be held to duties of care. These are duties of care are called fiduciary duties. And it's the reason why your doctor cannot operate on you unless it's for your own benefit. They cannot perform any kind of surgery on you just because they want to practice their abilities or because they want an extra 
data point for their research or because they want extra money. They can only perform surgery on you if it's in your best interest. And in the same way, our personal data should only be used for our best interest and never against us. So even though it might seem radical to say something that we should end the data economy, we should have in mind two things. One is that we have ended practices that were very, very common in the past for moral reasons, even when they were profitable. So, I mean, there are many examples, but the fact that we give most people eight-hour shifts and weekends and paternity leave and all kinds of things, we don't do it because it's more economically advantageous, but because it's the right thing to do and people are not resources to exploit, but are human beings who have claims and have rights. And the second thing is that what's crazy is not to end the data economy. What's crazy is to have a business model that depends on the systematic and mass violation of rights. That's totally unacceptable. And we shouldn't get used to it and we have to end it. Thank you so much, Carissa, for that. I'm going to come to you next, Duncan. You've talked about some of the regulatory changes that you would want to see previously. And what came to mind for me was GDPR. Didn't that just fix everything, Duncan? Aren't we good now? Well, I mean, GDPR was a really, really important first step. But ultimately, there's definitely a lot of deficiencies to it. I think we're also in a period where we haven't really seen the GDPR properly applied. And so that's why cases like mine are happening against YouTube. But I'm now in a small group of five others leading kind of massive class actions against various companies. So there's one against Facebook. There's one against specifically against the ad tech companies, so-called Salesforce and Oracle. I would really like to see it tightened up. I think Carissa articulates really, really well, you know, what are our high level ambitions, which is really to end this trade in personal data, or at least severely, really curtail it, focus on those targeted ads. And I think, you know, as Carissa mentioned, these are really, really radical changes, especially when, again, if we go back to thinking that what we're talking about is really how the digital economy funds itself. And this isn't just one kind of element of it. You know, when I first started talking about kind of ending personalized advertising, curtailing the trade in personal data, which we did in a report for NEF in 2018, then it really, really did seem totally far-fetched. But we've come so far, I think, in the last three years where suddenly talking about ending targeted ads is no longer that crazy. Many of the large ad tech companies are seeing the writing on the wall and are moving to what's called contextual targeting, which is a bit what Carissa described, which is rather than knowing anything about me personally, if I'm reading an article about golf, well, it's probably likely that I'm interested in golf, better to intuit things like that. For other things like curtailing the trade in personal data, I think that's probably more going to come down to the legal fights that are happening in the courts at the moment. I certainly don't think the UK government's going to beef up the regulations in the way that we would like to see. So, so I think we are making progress. Part of it will come out naturally as technology evolves and the ad tech industry, in fact, moves on. We may not even need to ban it. It may be that the ad tech industry moves on by itself. But I think the other really important thing that Carissa mentions is turning this asset data into something of value to something that's almost a bit more toxic. And so, you know, I think it'd be really interesting to create such a situation where actually the liabilities of either holding illegal data, processing illegal data, using illegal data to build your algorithms, all of those would come with such big legal consequences if they were done illegally, that in fact, holding these large amounts of data just becomes really, really toxic and just kind of stops happening. So those are, I think, some of the big changes that we're going to have to see and hopefully will see over the next kind of four or five years. Fingers crossed. So, Corey, I want to give you the last word on this because we're going to wrap up. Can you tell us what changes to the way we regulate data that you'd like to see? I mean, for one, we could start by enforcing the law that we've already got. So I always say with the GDPR and other data protection stuff that we're basically in the position like we were with a bunch of environmental regulations a few years ago where the law was actually pretty clear. So let's take something like the EU's air quality directive, which is very clear. There's a clear number of amounts of pollutants that London's air is allowed to maintain. And London has for many, many, many years uh, been in excess of that binding limit when we were still part of the EU. And it was when, when, when campaigning groups and, say, Client Earth or some of these other groups would go to the court and say, listen, 
the law has been broken, court, you need to enforce the law. The government would come forward and say, oh, well, this is all terribly complicated and expensive, and we're trying to do it, but actually it's very difficult. And the cases would kind of collapse on remedies because the judge would say to the claimants, well, what do you want me to do? Kind of pedestrianize Oxford Street by order. But that was kind of before Greta Thunberg. It was before Extinction Rebellion. And now I think you're seeing a lot more progress made legally on the environmental front and quite frankly, politically on the environmental front. And we just haven't quite got there with kind of the data economy because people don't yet quite see the power being exercised or the consequences to people. But that can change. And I think it is changing, as Duncan says. I mean, you're starting to see regulators of all kinds saying that actually targeted advertising needs to be phased out, that there need to be protections before this kind of algorithmic decision-making is used. But the other thing I would say is we've really got to use it or lose it because Duncan kind of referred to it in passing, but I'm just going to be explicit. This government is moving in the direction of a real bonfire of the regulations that protect us all. And one of the things the chopping block is clearly all of our data rights and data protection. We know this because Oliver Dowden, the head of DCMS, put out a kind of trial balloon in the FT this week, basically saying, well, we need a different regime that, you know, still kind of protects us, but also opens us up for innovation. And let me just say, when anybody tells you that regulation hampers innovation, you need to be very careful and think about whose interests they really have in mind. Duncan actually has a really nice analogy that I've heard him use before that has to do with the car industry, where basically all kinds of industries say, listen, if you regulate us properly, then that's going to hamper our ability to innovate. But what we have actually found over time and in history is that proper, safe regulation can open up whole new areas of competition and innovation and make the economy better for all of us. Okay, that is sadly all we've got time for this week. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you all so much for joining me. So one by one then, Duncan McCann, thank you. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Uh, Go to the New Economics website and on the authors, you can look at Duncan McCann and you can see some of my stuff there. Great. And Carissa Valise, same question. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people grab your book? Um, Anywhere. Blackwell's is my favorite bookstore, but uh, it's up to you. It's going to come out in the US in early April and in Spain in October and otherwise in the UK. And you can follow me on Twitter if you wanted to hear me rant about these things. <laughs> well, the ranting is certainly um, insightful, so I'll be doing that. And finally, Corey Kreider, thank you so much for being with us. Same question, how can we get more Corey Kreider? Please go to Foxglove's website. If you search for Foxglove Legal, it should find us because otherwise you're going to get yourself in a little gardening uh, impasse. Uh, and then the other thing is, of course, you can follow Foxglove Legal on Twitter and I'm at Corey underscore Kreider personally. Fantastic. That is it for today's weekly economics podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.